AJT readers, uh, this is Josh Levitsky, and I'm joined today by Roz Manon, who's at UAB, and we have a really uh, exciting new format today for our October AJT issue. We are live from the AST Fellows Symposium in Grapevine, Texas, and uh, we planned this out. This was actually Roz's idea to get some fellows at the or some trainees at the meeting to join us on the podcast. And today we have two very lucky fellows who uh, we've reached out to and are trainees, one fellow and one uh, doctoral candidate who, and they're both here to help us with interpreting the papers that are the editor's picks for the October issue. And so Patrick Ahern is a transplant nephrology fellow at Stanford. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Great. And Jen Alaco, did I say that right? Yes. Is at the University of Chicago is an immunology grad student. So welcome. Yes, it's great to you. have you guys. And let me um, just go through quickly the, the listing of the papers that we're going to be talking about. Uh, the first paper in our order is uh, from Height et al., uh, Allocation to Highly Sensitized Patients Based on Acceptable Mismatches Results in Low re Rejection Rates Comparable to Non-Sensitized Patients. And Patrick is going to be talking about that one. Then we'll move right into uh, Annette Tambour's paper on the quest to decipher HLA immunogenicity, telling friend from foe, do we have time for this? Jen will do that. And then we are going to, to finish this section of it with a paper from Egelkamp called uh, Back Signaling of HLA Class 1 Molecules and TNK cell receptor ligands in epithelial cells reflects the rejection-specific microenvironment in renal allograft biopsies. That'll be also Jen. Well, what I'll say is Roz and I are going to review the papers, and Jen and Patrick are going to help us after we review them and provide some comments and how the, they feel the papers are impactful. And then the final two papers will be uh, a vendor-specific microbiome controls, both acute and chronic, urine lung allograft rejection by altering CD4 positive, FOXB3 positive regulatory T cells by Guo et al. With, um, uh, and an editorial from Bromberg's uh, group. And then uh, we'll end with a paper that's a real clinical paper, Patterns of Geographic Variability in Mortality and Eligible Deaths Between Organ Procurement Organizations by Cannon et al. with an uh, editorial by Dori Segev's group. So why don't we dive right in? Uh, we're going to start off with the height paper. Um, Roz, you want to sure. quickly go Sure. So um, I won't repeat the titles because I know you're all following along very well. But this is um, by the uh, Euro Transplant uh, HLA uh, group. And it's basically an update about the Euro Transplant Acceptable Mismatch Program. So in the U.S. and, and generally in Europe, you know, we list patients for organs based on what is unacceptable. So we look for the antigens that patients make antibodies to, and we say they can't get those organs. But in this acceptable mismatch program or AM program, it's been running for about 30 years in Europe. They take very highly sensitized patients and using sensitive in vitro techniques and um, molecular uh, typing, they've identified which HLA antigens patients don't respond to. And in doing so, they actually list acceptable antigens. So it's kind of the opposite strategy. 
And so, and, and the way they identify this is they either use specific cells that have one HLA mismatch to the patient, or they actually have a series of K562 mononuclear cells that are transfected with a single antigen. And so they have these panels and these individual patients are listed by their acceptable matches. And they've previously published um, data indicating that these patients have superior graft survival when they're transplanted in this fashion, when they're highly sensitized, rather than using the acceptable mismatch program. So uh, this study is just an extension of that. It's, it's to look at rejection rates in patients that have this uh, acceptable mismatch because they don't have the granularity of data using other European, using like a European network information. They actually looked at a subset of individuals from the uh, Netherlands and the Dutch ProCare study, and they followed them for a 10-year period from 95 to 2005. And suffice it to say that when they look at rejection rates in the one antigen, um, when they look at one antigen mismatches, and they look at the rates of, I mean, the one antigen matches, I mean, sorry, when they look at the matched patients from the acceptable match, those individuals have significantly better rejection rates in the first six months, and indeed long-term over the first five years after transplantation. Um, and this is in, in, in opposition to patients that are either highly sensitized and matched in this typical fashion that we would in the U.S., or in individuals that were less highly sensitized, like 0 to 5% PRA from the distant past. So the bottom line is, is that this is kind of an interesting way to consider the highly sensitized. It's not commonly done here in the United States, but that's why it's good to see what other people are doing in other countries. And I, there are some limitations. They don't have information in this data set necessarily of biopsy-proven rejection. The rejections were pulled based on rejection treatment. There's no information about donor-specific antibodies because during the phase of the study, they weren't routinely collected. So we don't really know whether some of these rejections were antibody-mediated. We don't know in the context of the patients, you know, not, you know, just in routine without rejection, whether there were differences in the development of DSA. But I would assume that because survival was significantly better using acceptable matches, that these individuals likely did not have donor-specific antibody. They have some interesting theories of why it works. I, I'll, I'll tantalize you by saying, go read the paper on, on the uh, discussion page. The bottom uh, middle two paragraphs, they talk about why this might work. They also bring up the suggestion of maybe neonatal tolerance and acceptability to non-inherited maternal antigens, which I thought was intriguing. And my question is, you know, could we translate this to the United States? Patrick, what do you think? Could, could we? Do, I think it could be done. We know how to do a CDC cross-match. It's just usually not done in this manner where we're prospectively doing cross-matches on every HLA that you can, every, every HLA you can think of to find acceptable matches. It's really clever. It's really smart. It makes a lot of sense. I guess I, I'm interested, I'd be interested to know what the, the cost and time is for something like this and what it would look like in the United States, but. So, uh, sir, I mean, certainly it's a small cohort, you know, relatively speaking, it's yeah. 1,500 patients. And they definitely, this group has published previously reagents and, and techniques they have course, available. Yeah. So it could be something that, you know, particularly that that subsection of patients that maybe have increased opportunity through our allocation scheme might actually benefit from something yeah, like this. You so. could find a, you could, they're going to be towards the top of the list anyway to right. find a better match. Right. I also was just struck that preformed DSAs didn't prevent didn't predict rejection in the first six months in front table, table two there. It's just good for thought. Hmm. 
idea. How do you think this changes uh, practice, or, or do you think it does, or open up any 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 so new things is, to research? I mean, I think in terms, it's kind of it would be an interesting an interesting protocol for a lab to take up here for programs to, to think about doing, especially larger programs that have a big HLA lab. It's kind of just, as Roz was mentioning, the opposite approach of what we take in the United States, where we find unacceptable mismatches. And mm. I think that, yeah, I think it's, it's worth thinking about, definitely. Mm. And, and those rejection rates are quite low, quite, quite low. I mean, they're strikingly low. Yeah. And, 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 and typically, European centers don't use depletional induction. They mm. use basal uh, So it so may not be entirely relevant and, to and, us and here, but... But, uh, I mean, I, I think also in the paper they talk about how they match to DQ and DR. Right. And that's, that's another. Right. It's a great point. Another thought we're thinking about. I think if you look at table, table figure two, people in their regular program, not in the AM program, looks like their rejection rates with the two DR or one DR plus one B match look pretty similar to the people in the AM program to me. Yeah. And really, yeah. the the increased rejection comes in people who don't have that match. Mm. the one match so interesting it's well, interesting thought there something to think about yeah. again this yeah. is a smaller consortium of transplant yeah, sure. centers with, we got to get you know with uh, everybody else online in the united states quite a different population yeah as well. yeah which is All more right. right less uh, racial diversity mm -hmm. cool i think that will dovetail right into Annette Timber's paper. So Absolutely. So Annette's uh, paper, you know, intriguingly titled The Quest to Decipher HLA Immunogenicity Telling Friend from Foe. So this is a brief communication from the Northwestern University Tissue Immunology Lab. I believe you're familiar with these folks. Yes, Could you talk to them? <laughs> I mean, I, I, as of course in liver, you probably don't worry about these things like uh, we do. Bit, but again, this is a really sort of interesting paper specifically focusing on de novo DSA that occurs when you have two mismatches at the DQ locus. So Dr. Tambor is very interested in the DQ locus and the immunogenicity, and again, in the development of HLA antibodies. And so obviously we have a deformed uh, you know, concern about avoiding HLA that will cause that either from preformed antibodies or the development of antibodies. And so there are a lot of methodologies to look at the immunogenicity between a donor and recipient. And I just want everybody to know that I don't do this work for a living. So if I'm misquoted, please send me an email or tweet and let me know what I've said wrong. But there are these programs that look at amino acid sequences and molecular mismatching, like the HLA matchmaker program, this amino acid comparison, this uh, EMS electrostatic mismatch score, and then the Pierce score, which is called predicted indirect, indirectly recognizable HLA epitopes. And it looks at uh, antigens that are presented by um, or epitopes that are presented through HLA class two. And so these programs are used by many investigators um, of the HLA to identify which mismatch scores are, are much higher. And as many of you know, there's a, a lot of interest in epilet mismatches and how patients who look well-matched don't do as well sometimes. And it's because at an, a triple amino acid level, they're mismatched. So Dr. Tambor's group really wants to do this at, at, a, at as she puts it through the eyes of the recipient immune system that we line things up in one segment and we're not looking at the alleles re relative to each other, that we have the group of alleles rather than looking at them individually. And so to do this, she actually looked at a cohort of 2,300 patients, about 2,000 patients from 2008 to 2016, and basically focused on those that had DQ mismatches and identified specifically those that had two DQ mismatches where one 
uh, from, from between recipient and donor, where that recipient made an eight, a DSA only to one of the DQ mismatches and not the other, which seems odd. You know, if, if it's mismatch, it's mismatch. Why are some DQs more immune stimulatory or more immunogenic? And I have to say that these methods are not something that I'm very familiar with, but I actually got to interrogate Dr. Tambor at the recent Ashi Banff meeting uh, two days ago. And so I, I have a sense of what she, for the commoner of us that don't do this for a living, she tried to explain it to me. But um, essentially, she looked at mean molecular weight mismatch scores and, and epilet mismatches and, and EMS scores. And interestingly, in these patients, those individuals that did not have de novo DSA had higher levels of this mismatch score than those that didn't. It was the opposite. And so, um, and that doesn't seem to make sense, but when you sort of look at the way she outlines the differences in amino acids, you have a better sense. And in doing so, if, if, if you look at figure five, and I have to say, it's very hard to understand this, but when she looks at all the combined alleles of recipient versus donor and A in the blown up section of A, and then separately evaluates each of the donor DQ mismatches against a combination of the recipient. And then in, in panel C, she separates them out. You see, there are really significantly more mismatches, mismatched amino acids. And hence, it makes sort of more sense why some things are more immunogenic because you're sort of, you're sort of looking at each individual comparison not sort of globally matching it. And they do some very sophisticated in silico mutagenesis of certain epitopes that are unshown in figure three and look at the immunogenicity of those. So suffice it to say that I can't do this paper any justice, but I think this is actually quite fascinating that you can, rather than just sort of thinking about these programs that look more globally at the difference between donor and recipient, you know, we should probably be drilling down a little bit more at the amino acid level and looking at individual alleles versus the donor alleles in each different combination. And I think her idea is to try to use this, first of all, you know, looking at more diverse patient populations where there are differences in donor and recipient race and potentially creating and looking at something that's more specific. So just epilet mismatches um, and other molecular weight measurements are not sufficient to really determine the immunogenicity of an HLA-DQ mismatch. There's a really very, you know, and for those that really don't want to spend an evening reading because, you know, we're all busy, but figure nine has a really great, I saw Jen had the figure out, and, and figure nine is kind of a great way to sort of explain this, this concept of immunogenicity. There's great color pictures. My printer was in, on the fritz, but... It still looks purple to me. Again, I, I think this is kind of a cool paper and a very novel. Um, I mean, Annette tries to explain this to me once before. And um, I want to say that I thought she and her fellow presented some of this data at ATC. So I think it's a new way of sort of thinking about immunogenicity in humans. Jen, Patrick, I don't know if you guys had anything you wanted to add. I, I agree. Um, figure nine is really just highlighting that um, the quality of the mismatch rather than the number of mismatches is what's really determining the immunogenicity of the uh, allele. I'm interested to figure out, though, how they would approach predicting how specifically the quality of the mismatch, like how they would assign quality. They do get uh, into the specific mutations a little bit in Table 2, where they show um, all the different types of amino acids and other switches from 
hydrophobic to hydrophilic, um, size changes, and so on and so forth. But it, and I think they really need to um, almost create a database where they could use past patient data and um, past mismatches that have generated DSA in order to like be predictive for future patients. Yeah, and, and again, recall that you know she started with twenty five hundred patients over the last mm -hmm. six or seven years and was really only able you know to find this in order to explore the paradigm. She re she only had thirty out of that group. So I think they have to go to the individual groups and say, okay, well now we have the two mismatches with each having DSA or one mismatch with one DSA, and then kind of working backwards from her from her consort diagram on Figure One. I think I think my biggest takeaway from this is that we really can't take new technology as dogma and that there's H1 matchmaker, it's not going to be able to predict uh, immunogenicity, immunogenicity perfectly and that we really have to come up with more techniques to really figure out is this person going to reject the, the potential mate that they're going to get. Well, on, on that note, yeah, yeah. I mean, Josh, I think we might have to send uh, Patrick and Jen's uh, email addresses to Nat and she might want to uh, have you guys yeah, do an extra postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do some follow-up there. All right, finally, uh, for the HLA portion of this, which seems the, to be the, most the, of this uh, podcast, is the Edelkamp paper. Sure. So um, this is from Johanna Edelkamp, and the senior author is Christine Falk, a good friend of mine from Hanover Medical School, who's also uh, the chair of Pillar One of the Women in Transplant. So this is sort of an interesting paper. I think that most of us think of HLA signaling, the, the work of Elaine Reed's laboratory, looking at the signaling between HLA molecules and HLA antibody and endothelial cells. Um, but this paper is a little near and dear to my heart because the lonely renal epithelial cells, the, the parenchymal cells that are present are really not been really examined very much. I mean, probably about 20, 30 years ago, people were looking at proximal tube epithelial cells as professional antigen presenters. That was work by Tony Jevnikar and looking at a lupus mice, but this is um, a model. Uh, there's a lot of in vitro data here looking at renal proximal tubular epithelial cells and what's called back signaling. So what they're trying to in investigate is the functional impact of anti-class 1 HLA on epithelial cell function and identify that there is reciprocal signaling by tuber epithelial cells to promote an inflammatory environment. So Normally, I think we're thinking that the antibody binds and then there's these immune cells and the immune cells have all the action, in this case, TNNK cells. But in reality, these proximal tuber, but mostly proximal tuber epithelial cells, at least by her in vitro studies, have activation and secrete inflammatory cytokines. So I could spend about an hour on this paper, but I know we don't have an hour. So I'll just uh, suffice to say that they look at a number of proximal tuber epithelial cells. Some are a couple of cell lines. They also look at freshly isolated cells commercially available. And they look at two ligands that are on proximal tuber epithelial cells that interact with NK and T cells, specifically CD155, which has specific ligands on that lead to T cell activation, and CD166, which binds CD6 on T cells. And they use an in vitro system where they cross-link CD155 or CD166 with anti-HLA class 1 and combinations thereof and identify a cytokine secretion in vitro. Interestingly, they look at a lot of different inhibitors of standard signaling. And notably, the standard immunosuppressants, mTOR inhibitors and calcineurin inhibitors, don't seem to have an impact on this sort of inflammatory signaling that these tubular epithelial cells do. And the proxy of the signaling is that they're making these cytokines and cytokines are released. 
but they are susceptible to things like MAP kinase inhibition and June kinase inhibition. They also tie this in vitro work with um, a study of a series of allograft biopsies, both protocols, i.e. surveillance and rejection biopsies, and look at the expression of CD155 and CD166 in sort of stable biopsies, and then those that have inflammation, like full-blown T-cell mediated rejection and antibody-mediated rejection, and kind of show that there's upregulation of the expression of these molecules. And then they also have sort of a grind and bind where they grind up parts of the tissue in segments of cortex and medulla, and they even use look at capsule to as a sort of a negative control and show expression of a variety of these uh, epithelial-related cytokines that occurs, and it tends to go up in these inflammatory rejection processes, particularly AMR. And it's predominantly looks more vocally expressed in the medulla. They don't do individual immunohistochemical stains or in situ and immunohistochemistry for those particularly signals. And then they do some heat map analysis. They do more of a Luminex analysis of more cytokines. They um, show an unsupervised hierarchical clustering of these biopsies and, and show distinguished differences between the cytokine secretion in these re rejecting biopsies along the lines of the cytokines they show in vitro. Uh, so just to summarize, and this is really the 10,000 foot they view, they really identify the potential contribution of renal epithelial cells with a significant interest and focus on rejection and antibody-mediated rejection. Principal to their findings is the identification of the expression of CXL9 and 10, which has been correlated in other human experiments, both in urine and in biopsy mm -hmm. tissue and gene expression with rejection. Wasn't so that Peter Heger's? That, uh, Peter Heger amongst others, and yeah. I, I want to say Martin Nason's and Martin. Yeah, and and so um, so I'm not sure how specifically inflammatory is. The one thing I wanted to point out, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to call Christine about the paper, is that a lot of their activity, their immunoreactivity or inflammation, uh, these inflammatory markers appear more medullary. And so I don't think of the medulla as proximal tubular. I usually think of it as distal and collecting duct cells. And so I don't know how, why they didn't maybe look at those other cell lines or other types of cells to see, because some of these responses in background, like the IL-6 is very low, very, very low. It's detectable and it's different, but it's quite low in comparison to CXL9 and CXL10. But again, I wonder if they had thought about looking at cell lines or cells with, that are more representative of the medulla rather than proximal tubule, which I think is, is important. Mm. And Jen, I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to add, but again, novel, different, and makes you realize the parenchyma is not just sitting there, it's participating in the rejection response. I think that's the overall point. Yeah, I think for me, my question is, since there's this back signaling um, in the epithelial cells, in this case, it's during in the context of transplantation. However, CD6, um, one of the ligands for uh, CD166, is consistently expressed. So it could be, I guess, in a horrible situation that any T cell that enters uh, that area that comes in contact with an epithelial cell could trigger, I guess, sort of a feed-forward loop where the chemokines, CXCL10 and CXCL9, would be uh, expressed and then more T cells could infiltrate. So I, I'm kind of curious as to what would prevent that happening in a basal state. Um, I'm mm -hmm. sure there must be, we don't see this like massive chief cell infiltration normally. So right. clearly right. there's something happening. I think that would be an interesting area of investigation. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because the the expression of these ligands, 166 and 155, they're not very strong and sort of stable allografts. And it, they seem to be 
directionally increased during rejection. So I wonder if that's maybe why we don't see this sort of natural infiltration of cells, maybe. But I agree with you. It, it's complicated. And I think, you know, which chicken and what's egg? Because yeah. you had asked me that before we started the podcast. Is the antibody coming in and binding? And and again, there's not a ton of data to indicate that the antibody is getting there. Probably what's happening is there's endothelial disruption and inflammation and activation and leakage. Mm-hmm. With, and, and so this stuff is binding the basement membrane to begin with as opposed mm-hmm. to just going out to the to cell. But anyway, we have to move on. Yes, we do. So uh, that's great. Um, really interesting papers. Um, so we're going to end with two um, a shift uh, in from the HLA to one basic science paper and one clinical paper. So the one, the first one I'm going to talk about is the, this interesting lung rejection paper um, that correlated the microbiome with Tregs and rejection and differences in microbiome between strains of mice. They showed in this paper, this is by Guo et al. at UVA, that there was essentially a, a model. They had the same donor, but the, the, there were different uh, recipients from different labs that had different microbiomes. And one group of mice had severe rejection and the, and the other didn't. And so they kind of were sort of exploring why that might be and some of the mechanisms and the pathways to sort of connect the microbiome with the sort of immunophenotyping in the blood and rejection in the in the lung graft. So it, kind of the long and short is that they had uh, donor mice and the recipients, the same donors, but they had recipients from two uh, different laboratories. One was in Maryland and one was Indiana. They performed lung transplants. They did some interesting experiments on giving antibiotics to see if that changed the microbiota and it changed the um, rejection response in some of the uh, cells like Tregs. And they also did fecal transplants to see if it could be recovered. And the first thing that they found, again, was that these these Maryland uh, mice were basically that when they were engrafted had, were free of inflammation, whereas the Indiana mice had uh, significant rejection. Mm. And when they gave antibiotics to the Maryland mice, they had developed rejection. So there was some correlation there between clearing out the gut bacteria that was uh, having some positive effect in these Maryland mice and causing rejection. So the, the link here that they're, they tried to make, which I think was, was fairly compelling, was Tregs. And they found that there was a significantly increased proportion of Tregs in the Maryland mice compared to the Indiana mice at baseline. And when they gave antibiotics to the Maryland mice, the Tregs went down because the bacteria microbiome was being altered uh, by antibiotics and uh, it led to increase in Tregs and rejection. Um, the one unfortunate thing that they weren't able to show is that fecal transplantation did not seem to have an effect on it. You would think it would. It sort of it goes to kind of a clinical parallel if you could, um, you know, do fecal transplants from someone with a, you know, kind of a regulatory immune system. Maybe that could abrogate rejection in in organ transplantation. So, you know, I, uh, I am not an expert in this area or in lung transplant. I was interested because of the, um, I'm a gastroenterologist. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in the, in the um, intestinal microbiome, but here it's, it's correlating 
the intestinal microbiome with systemic Tregs and organ transplant rejection, and how maybe manipulations that we do, like antibiotics, could potentially be adverse in terms of increasing the risk of rejection. And um, it sort of it made me think about potential clinical studies that could be done to uh, examine this. Uh, there's a nice uh, editorial by Jonathan Bron- Bromberg's group, um, just kind of going over how it's titled "It's Complicated," which uh, Ed which says is, it in a nutshell. Yeah, which I thought is a really you know, creative uh, way of, of explaining it, which it is complicated because it's not. I think from this paper, it's not exactly you know, are all these things tied together completely? Or is there, you know, is this really a pathway that is consistent? And um, that's sort of the the question that, that Bromberg brings up is is whether this is really the microbiome or something different between uh, the genomic variability between the strains. So interesting has some uh, clinical potential applications. Uh, Jen, I don't, did you have some thoughts on the novelty of this um, it seemed to indicate maybe um, this is not too surprising that they were able to show this, but I'm, I'm curious what you think might have been novel about it. Um, so, I mean, I didn't think it was particularly surprising just conceptually. Um, we know that with different microbial communities, you can have um, different immune effects. So to me, it's not very surprising that the Maryland mice as opposed to Indiana mice, which have different microbial communities, have different T-reg populations. Um, but I think it's really nice to see it. I also actually really, I kind of liked that they were, um, well, I didn't like it. That's not a good way of saying that. But um, it was interesting to see that they, Gavage failed to reconstitute the T-Rex phenotype. And so building a little bit off of what you were saying with the different genetic backgrounds, as a basic scientist, like I'm always thinking of like the next experiment. So I think it would have been interesting to see maybe an F1 cross between two of the different um, Mm. types of mice Mm. that would have had a similar genetic constitution. And then if given antibiotics and then maybe the microbiomes from the different parental strains, could we then recapitulate the phenotype? I thought that would have been very interesting. Unfortunately, I believe they did mention- So control the um, kind of the genetic variability try to, to try to isolate yeah. that it's really the microbiota. Yes, yeah, or that sense. it is really the impact, the, um, the combination the impact, of the yeah. two, in which case mm-hmm. that's also very important to understand, particularly as you were saying uh, clinically, It'd be difficult to do, though. I believe the B16 Maryland is no longer available. Mm. Yeah. Did not know that. <laughs> I think they mentioned that in the paper. But you could still do something similar with the, mm-hmm. the Jackson Black 6 and then the mm-hmm. Indiana strain. Mm-hmm. You've got the laboratory insight into all this. So, well, well yeah. Josh, you stepped out of your comfort zone doing a basic science paper. So I did. Kudos to you. Thank you. I um, really well, appreciate it. I think it's interesting. I'm sure there's going to be more on this coming. And then... So the last one, I think we just had a couple minutes, I thought was uh, was interesting, was on the geographic variability between OPOs in terms of mortality and eligible deaths. I don't know, Patrick, if you can just kind of maybe just briefly summarize what, what they found. Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, this group out of the University of Louisville and also from Kentucky, they, they kind of did a really cool study. I thought this was a great study, actually. I thought it was... First of all, I want to commend the authors on writing a really good paper. It was like, this was a fun paper to read. I thought the introduction was engaging and, and good. And I thought their discussion was really well done. And, and the idea behind it is actually very clever. Yeah, so, so they looked into seeing whether or not the, what an OPO defines as an eligible death, which is the kind of the denominator when we look at how many potential deceased donors an OPO evaluates. 
if that number really correlates with the actual number of what should be the eligible deaths using CDC data. And so then they did a... Well, that, that's sort of like a mark of their performance. So. Exactly, yeah. 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 Which is, as you yeah. know, a major controversy right now yeah. is yeah. how are OPOs performing? And the federal government is very interested in identifying metrics. And I always say, well, what's the right metric? Yeah, right. You know, I mean, do you really want, you know... Well, anyway, you guys tell us. You tell us, because I think this is going, fascinating. Yes, yeah. keep going. So, so then I think in, in their methods, they looked at the... They kind of assumed that, uh, I just want to quote what they wrote here about the Tober's first law of geography, which states that everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distance, distant things. <laughs> and so it, I'm in a nutshell, they're saying that causes of death should be pretty similar in OPOs that are closer to each other. And so therefore, the numbers of eligible deaths should probably follow the same pattern. So OPOs close to each other <laughs> should have similar um, eligible deaths. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that, yes, according to CDC data, the OPOs close to one another did have similar causes of death. In the top five um, potential causes of death that lead to organ donation. And but then there was not, then there was a lot of variability between uh, geographically close OPOs in terms of reported eligible death to the center. Hmm. which kind of goes to the point that there is more evidence that different OPOs are performing differently. Yeah, no, I, I think it, 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 it really gets to the heart of the matter that um, uh, there's just such uh, variability, but it didn't, it, it, you know, sort of the geography didn't seem to be really much at play here, that there were, there were right. they, that... Um, answers that question. Yeah, it sort of answers the question. There was the ge geographic variability was not playing a significant role in the eligible death reporting, but that there was just a, a wide variability in between, between OPOs. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, um, you know, I think it's sort of one of these things that uh, is probably not too surprising, but highlights, you know, how do we really evaluate OPOs? And I think uh, Dory Segev's the editorial was kind of nice that it, um, it's, it, it kind of took, takes you sort of, it almost took this paper and really made it into its own, like the editorial is kind of its own paper, kind of a review in mm -hmm. the Dory Segev way. And if you look at figure one, it's kind of goes through like the whole organ donation right. process, right. which I thought was kind of cool. And I, and I think it's fascinating in this figure. It shows that there's all, there's so much data that's what's collected. It's collected by OPOs. It's available to the OPOs. Mm -hmm. And then, but what's shared nationally is really just the end stage of what the OPOs are doing, of what happens in the, in the donor process. Yeah, they really make the, it makes the argument that, you know, we really only find out these eligible deaths, they're only when they're really kind of identified and put into the system yeah. where we, it should be like steps before that yeah. to yeah. really understand how it's, how these are getting to the OPO and like, you know, that this, this whole pathway here that really only a piece of this is what is being reported. There doesn't seem to be a lot of argument against doing that. So yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't seem Somebody's like Somebody's got to do it, though. Privacy. <laughs> Someone has to do it when to release the data. But I think that the OPO has already entered all of this into a system that just needs to be... Yeah. Well, that would be a good fellow project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, wonderful. You guys are uh, true champions for, for uh, participating in this. We'd love to do more with fellows. I think this is a great idea, Roz. We'll it's to, nice uh, when we're it yeah. It's nice when we're in person. Usually, yeah. Josh and I never get to see each other, so um, 
Maybe at uh, CIOT and ATC. Yeah, we'll have to do uh, this. And um, it's great that you guys went out of your comfort zones to help us today and make it a little bit more interactive. I think that's what we're trying. We are lining up guests as well. Some uh, some of the authors, I think, will try to interview more um, in future episodes of our podcast. And I want to thank you guys because we've had an unbelievable two days and we have more learning to go. So um, I'll, right. I'll, we'll I'll sign off you. now and <laughs> we will sign off and uh, see you, I guess, in November. Take care. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's AMJ transplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.